Is it dark enough to see up there? Okay, good. You can see that Alexander the Great liberated the Greek cities and gave privilege to the Ephesians to build the new temple after it was destroyed. And this is the temple that, of course, is still there in the time of Paul. And I wanted you to see that a few famous people actually visited there. There was a brief rebellion where 80,000 Romans were killed, and then there was a trial of the people guilty of killing the Romans. And I read that sadly, thinking history keeps repeating itself. Cicero visited there in, uh, in the Italian times, and Mark Antony and Cleopatra went there. His name actually was Cleoptera, and she was a Greek. Just another fun fact. <laughs> I always thought she was an Egyptian. <laughs> All right, Ephesus was a large multi-ethnic center of trade and exceeded the population of, of only by Rome and Alexandria. Did we already learn something? Huge city. It's the capital city, the Roman province of Asia. Ephesus, approximately a quarter of a million people. At that time, that is astronomical. When some of the towns, some of the cities that Paul visits are maybe two, 3,000 people, this is a pretty amazing difference. It was a home to Greeks, Romans, and other settlers in the Mediterranean world. Travelers and pilgrims from all over the world visited Ephesus in large numbers. I even had someone say that uh, the Ephesian temple was kind of the Disney world of its day, which I'm not sure which, it, which way that's insulting to each, either one. But I get the idea. It was a multicultural center of trade and entertainment. And thought I'd throw this in. It had a medical college, renowned doctors, and a large library, as well as numerous shrines and statues, an underground sewer system, outdoor amphitheater. So sometimes I had this picture that Paul was going to these dusty little villages. And this was not at all a dusty village. Uh, they had uh, amazing opulence, split-level construction, 10,000 square foot homes. Here's a remodeling of it. Of course, the land didn't really look like a bunch of stacked cardboard. <coughs> but you can see it was a, a large city built on the Greek model. And, and there's the, what remains of the front of the library. Obviously, it's fallen into ruin now. And the uh, temple was up this direction. It looked like that in an artist rendering. I wish I could get that a little bigger, but it was incredibly beautiful temple. I want to talk a little bit about Artemis because it's so important to the story in Acts. Her uh, other name is Cynthia from her birthplace, Mount Synthus. I always wondered where that word Cynthia came from. <coughs> She's one of the, th the triple goddesses. She's the lady of the wild things, the huntsman and chief to the gods. Her main animal was the stag. And her temple was one of the ancient uh, seven wonders of the ancient world. And as you can see here, she has a mural crown with a disc behind the crown. On her breast, a garland of flowers. Sign of her influence is springtime. Lions cling to her arms. They really do <laughs> cling to her arms. She's the mother of wild beasts, and so she has many breasts. Um, actually, they... There's some conjecture as to that. They think that at the time, women actually would wear these uh, uh, necklaces of gourds, and that it's that, but it's, I think, a little of both. And her legs are closely bandaged in ornaments with figures of bulls, stags, lions, and griffins, in case you're wondering what all those little things are down there. And there are bees, which is one of her symbols. There's the temple. <coughs> this is an inscription found in Ephesus to the healer of diseases to Apollo, the giver of light to mortals. 
Antichus has set up a votive offering, a statue of the Christian lady of Ephesus, the light bearer. The Christian approach was at variance with the tolerant synchristic approach of the pagan gods that were not theirs. And so a Christian inscription also found in Ephesus suggests why so little remains at this site. This is an inscription found there. Destroying the delusive image of the demon Artemis, Damis has erected the symbol of truth that God drives away idols, the cross, priest, deathless, and victorious son of Christ. One of the sad things I think about historically about the Christian church is that they would just destroy these temples and put, either put something on top of it or just destroy them and leave them there. Uh, we'll talk about that later. It comes up in Acts. All right, to sum up, Ephesus is pluralistic in every way. Many ethnic and cultural backgrounds represented. In a lot of ways, uh, uh, writers that I was looking at compared it to modern America. So the beliefs were diverse, considerable moral variance was accepted, and they were a very tolerant society. So normally if you bring in a new religion, you're welcome to come in. But the whole idea that there would be one right religion would have caused some social problems. All right. Ephesus was a significant uh, city in the first decades of the church. Ephesians appears several times in the New Testament. I'll hit a few highlights. But I, I remember, for some reason, there are certain characters that just stay in your mind after you read the Acts, and Priscilla and Aquila always stuck in mind. They were early church leaders, church founders, and they moved their business to Ephesus and apparently started the church there, and then Paul joined them later, as you can see here, and uh, they become mentor and work in that area, which of course set a standard that I think that we are missing sometimes in church history is that men and women were often leaders in the church. Then he comes there and he debates at the University of Ephesus and it begins a problem we'll look at a little bit in a few minutes. And then later on, uh, he writes first Timothy because Timothy is sent there. <coughs> then uh, Revelation mentions again Ephesus and then we have a, a one of the church fathers, Ignatius of Antioch who writes about Ephesus. So we're gonna look at all of that overly. I can time myself well. All right, again, I don't want you to read all of this, but I wanted to hit a few highlights. So around 52 to 55, Paul comes to Ephesus and gives daily talks in the school of Tyrannus for two years. And then historically, uh, the Fourth Ecumenical Council takes place in Ephesus and Mary is declared Theodicus, mother of God. In case you wondered when that began, we'll talk about that too and why was it Ephesus? And then in the 6th century, Justinian built the great basilica of St. John. Unfortunately, after that, things kind of fall apart. All right. So like I said, the Council of Nicaea, we're going to look at that more carefully later, so I'm going to pass this. But I do want to point out that it was destroyed by the Turks in 1090. So most of the places, um, most of these cities in Asia Minor are going to be destroyed eventually by the Turks or during the Muslim period. In 1439, there was still a church there, but they said it had basically become a village. Now, I want to talk about some interesting connections. Traditionally, Mary 
went to Ephesus and lived there with John. And this is Christian tradition. I don't know how much basis there is of this. There are other theories of where she was, but there is a house there that is said to be Mary's house. So, according to Catholic tradition, Mary took, uh, the death of Mary takes place, the assumption of Mary into heaven takes place in Ephesus, where she went with John. There's no record before the fourth century about this. There's other good reason to believe that he, she died in Jerusalem because there is a, a place called the Tomb of Mary. But as you know, historically, <laughs> there are a lot of different sites in the ancient world. But what's interesting to me is that the veneration of Mary began in Ephesus, which is the very center of what? Artemis. So, historically, as you remember from times that I've talked before, historically places that were centers of worship for the goddess become places of veneration for Mary. They can't totally replace the idea, they just kind of overlay it. Now, again, there's a lot of stuff up here I just want to hit a few highlights. <coughs> so we know of Ephesus from Acts, where he meets some Christians who only know of John's baptism. We, uh, and we know that he preached there. We know that he wrote the letter to the saints in Ephesus, which is probably, as it says, a circular letter to the whole area. Ephesus was the center of Timothy's ministry, and traditionally the sphere of the apostle John's ministry. All right, so what happens in Acts 19? Again, I'm, I'm not going to hit everything here, but I want to look at some of the highlighted things. So, as it said before, he took the disciples with him, had discussions <laughs> daily in the lecture hall of Ternus. Some Jews went around driving out evil spirits, trying to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. They would say, in the name of Jesus whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. Seven sons of Seva a Jewish chief priest were doing this. One day the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know and Paul I know, but who are you? I was glad that this one worked out because that's one of my favorite lines in the book of Acts. It reminds me of that famous one, I knew John Kennedy. <laughs> You're no John Kennedy. <laughs> Darn good rhetoric too, the repetition of the pattern. <coughs> So it is one of, the, one of the most catchy stories in Acts. And um, it has an effect. Most people began to believe and come to hear Paul and a, a number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. So Paul's having quite a significant impact. And of course, another fun part of the story, a silversmith named Demetrius who made silver shrines of Artemis, uh-oh, brought in a lot of business for the craftsmen there. Does this sound like modern America? It does. <laughs> Everything's fine until you're hitting the money. Sure, come talk about Jesus. It's fine. But things got complicated. This is what Demetrius says. He says the gods made by human hands are no gods at all. There is danger not only that our trade will lose its good name, but also the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited, and the goddess herself, who is worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the world, will be robbed of her divine majesty. It's interesting how he puts that. So then they began shouting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians, and the whole city goes into an uproar, and they call Paul before them. 
But the whole thing is quieted. Remember I told you that uh, this city had been um, democratized? It has a tradition of, of <laughs> democracy here, and you can see it here. The city clerk quieted the crowd and said, fellow Ephesians, doesn't all the world know that the city of Ephesus is the guardian of the temple of the great Artemis and of her image, which fell from heaven? Therefore, since the facts are undeniable, you ought to calm down and not do anything rash. You brought these men here, and no, they never robbed temples nor blasphemed your goddess. If then Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have grievance against anybody, the courts are open, and there are proconsuls. They can press charges. If there's anything further you want to bring up, it must be settled where? Legal assembly. So a mixture of Greek and Roman law and history. So he dismissed the assembly, and Paul leaves Ephesus. All right. When Paul writes his epistle, he's imprisoned in Rome, and he's writing to the church. Now, what I want to look at is some of the themes that he uses in his letter and how they might relate to the context. As a prisoner of the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you've received. Be completely humble and patient uh, and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. So, key theme to the Ephesians, love one another. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. Again, if you think about that rhetorically, how many times does he say the word one? Now, there's something interesting here, too, that he seems to be quoting. This is probably an early, uh, he's probably quoting early church liturgy because of that pattern. It doesn't sound like something made up. It sounds like something you would say as you were uh, bringing someone into the church. There's one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. Now, what I think is interesting about that is, remember I said one of the key aspects of this city is that it is diverse. Yes? But they do unite when they found out their money was a threat. <laughs> they all pulled together under the name of Artemis. So Paul is pulling on both of those themes. There's one faith, but inside of that faith, as you know from your own culture, is diversity. So Christ himself gave us apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers to equip his people for the work of service so the body of Christ may be built up until we reach unity of faith and knowledge of the Son of God. So second theme he hits on is unity and diversity, which I think would be an important message for a city like Ephesus. The third thing that he brings up then we would no longer be infants tossed back and forth by waves blown here and there by every wind of teaching, by cunning and craftiness of people and their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to be in every respect the mature body of him who is head, that is Christ. The other theme that he hits on here is to distinguish true from false teaching. It's interesting to me that from the very beginnings of the church, they were arguing about what was the correct way to interpret something. I remember um, when I was at college, there was a group of people putting together what they called a New Testament church. Now I know enough that if I hear someone doing that, I laugh pretty much in their face. That, I'm like, I'd like to see that. 
because I don't know how many people naively decide we're going to start a New Testament church. We're going to not. We're going to get away from whatever the Presbyterians did or whatever the Calvinists came up with. We're going to go back to the original before the Catholic Church, before everybody. We're going to be just like the first century church. And I'm like, the first century church, everyone argued over everything. There were arguments from the very beginning. Peter and Paul did not agree. Are you with me? <laughs> People were trying to figure out what they actually believed. I was talking about one of the distinctions that I'm going to talk about in this slideshow to someone, and she goes, what is the difference? <laughs> she goes, I believe the wrong one. And I'm like, I... <laughs> so the sad truth is, if we spring forward, we're going to look at these themes. What were the themes? Love, unity, and diversity, and what? Distinguish true from false teaching. Now, unfortunately... You've probably noticed people are like children. I, a lot of times people will say to me, like, uh, I remember in grade school, there were some teachers that were very sweet, and there were some that were like, get against the wall. Nobody touches anybody. Yes, I had all of those. <laughs> I had every one of those. But one day it occurred to me why there were each. And when I was a parent, this became apparent. All right, imagine a, a kindergarten teacher, first grade teacher, they say to the class, there's good touching and there's bad touching, right? Good touching, what's an example of good touching? You go like hugging, yes, hugging is good. You know, holding hands, holding hands is good. Kissing on the cheek, yes, kissing on the cheek is good. Um, putting your arm around someone's shoulder, sure. Those are good. And what's some bad ones? Punching, hitting, pinching. <laughs> pinching, kicking. Yes? Okay. But then again, as this teacher continues to teach, the students, there's, these, there's a couple of boys tussling. One of them has got a bloody lip and everything else. And they go, we're just hugging. <laughs> and at that moment, they created that teacher that I got. Nobody touches anybody. <laughs> now, historically, this is what I, sadly, I've, uh, that analogy seems to fit what historically happens to the church. It's like at the beginning, it's, it's love. The focus is love, not false teaching. Yes? It's there, but it's not the focus. If you look at the whole letter, false teaching takes a part of it, but most of it is about unity, love, creating a congregation, an ecclesia. We see this, and then look again. What does Paul tell Timothy? As I urged you when I went to Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus so you can command certain people not to teach false doctrines anymore. They're still doing it. But right after that, he says what? The goal of this is what? Love. Not to ferret out the bad, but to love them into the community. Yes, there's a difference, isn't there? When you go to correct someone, there's a way to do it in love, and there's a way to do it where you shame them, or you just push them out. True? You can probably guess which one the church eventually goes to, or because which one's simpler? Push them out. In fact, kill them. 
lovely to read this stuff. And sad when you read it in this context. If you look in Revelation, interesting to the church in Ephesus, right? Now, we don't know who the John was that wrote this uh, Revelation. Some theories that it's the same writer that wrote Gospel of John. I don't want to get into that this time. So let's just say the author says, I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people and you've tested those who claim to be apostles or not and found them false. So that he's commending them that you're still doing a pretty good job of keeping false teachers out. Yes? So Ephesus is doing what Ephesus was told to do. Apparently, Paul and Timothy had some effect. This you have in your favor. You hate the practice of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. You're like, who are the Nicolaitans? Ah, glad you asked. We'll get to that in a second. Whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to the one who is victorious. But look what he says before he says that. Yet I hold this against you. You have what? Forsaken the love you had at first. Huh. So they stayed true to what Paul was telling them. They stayed true to what Timothy told them. But already by the this would be 90, around 90. The church is falling away from which of those two imperatives? It brings us to the point, like, how do you have unity? Do you have unity by throwing people out? So you're a club? Or do you have unity through love? It's a tough question, isn't it? Which one's easier? All right, so who were the Nicolaitans? I'm going to look at three different controversies that happened in this very place, Ephesus. All right, we don't really know a whole lot. <laughs> Basically because most of these people are represented only by their enemies, and so we don't really know what they believed. Everybody burned their stuff. Now, as a historian, this ticks me off. Like, I... This is not the best approach. But apparently they believed in eating food, sacrificed to idols, which was a big issue in Acts, if you remember. And Paul brings it up in some of his letters and committing sexual immorality. The whole idea is that if your soul is saved, it doesn't matter what you do with your body. Yes? So it doesn't matter if you eat food offered to idols. Logically, it makes sense, right? My soul is saved. Body's not important. It's just what you're looking at. This is why Paul ends up writing a lot of things like your body is the temple of God. You can't just go throwing nonsense in there. That's why he's saying all that, because he's fighting already this, uh, what they call the heresy. All right, now, we look at it. Um, we're not quite sure when he was born or when he died, but we do know that Ignatius of Antioch wrote a letter later to the Ephesians. Um, so he would be another generation after Paul. So he writes, their bishop Onesimus had praised them because you all live according to truth and no heresy dwells among you. In fact, not e you will not even listen to anyone who does not speak Jesus Christ in truth. Did they get the message? Did they listen to Paul? Did they listen to Timothy? They did. Where's part two? 
I have learned, Ignatius added, that some of you from elsewhere who have evil teaching stayed with you, but you did not allow them to sow it among you and have stopped your ears. You might receive what they sow. Guess what he doesn't talk about at all? Just not there. All right. Ephesus becomes the center of another controversy. The Nestorians... They called the Third Ecumenical Council in 431 in Ephesus to resolve a dogmatic controversy divided the church into two main camps. Now, from a historical perspective, we tend to think, okay, well, there was this little group, this splinter group over here, and then there was the church. But it really, it was more like half and half. People um, didn't consider these heresies. Both considered themselves Christians. Theodore of Mopsuestia, supported by Nestorus, Archbishop of Constantinople. So he's an Archbishop of Constantinople, came known as the Nestorian Heresy. Who named it that? The winners. The opposite camp was rendered by Cyril, Archbishop of Alexandria, the Pope, and Emperor Theodosius the Younger. Theodosius who called the council, believed that the strength of his empire depended on the true worship of God without the intermingling of falsehood. So he's the one that calls the council to try to solve this problem. So we've moved 400 years into the future, or 300 and something years, and 200 church fathers attended. How did it come out? You could probably guess Nestorus loses. But what's important is he's not just some guy, right? He's an archbishop as well. Here is the argument, and this is the one where I explained it to someone, and then she goes, what's the difference? It was about Mary being the mother of God. Now, let's back up. Why is this in Ephesus? Because why? Traditionally, this is her assumption. Also, the earlier associations with the goddess Artemis. They're deciding if Mary is indeed to be called the mother of God. Well, you can have two titles that mean the mother of God. One, Theodicus, all right, Christoph, Christoph, oh, darn it, I practiced saying that. <laughs> Christopticus, Christopticus. All right. One, okay, the first one means God-bearer or mother of God. Nestor has claimed that she only bore Christ's human nature in her womb and proposed the alternative, Christopticus. Christ-bearer, our mother of Christ. You can see why my friend said, what's the difference? The Orthodox Catholic theologians believe that Nestor's theory would fracture Christ into two separate persons, one human and one divine, joined in a sort of loose unity, only one of whom was in her womb. That sounds logical until you realize that they insisted that he was two natures. Okay. <laughs> it's this is a mess. Now I'm sure some of you are thinking, "Well, thank gosh, I'm a Protestant." <laughs> the Church reacted in 431 with the Council of Ephesus, saying that Mary can only be uh, can be called the mother of God, but not the mother of Christ. In the sense that she's older than, not in the sense that she's older than God or the source of God, in the sense that 
that the person she carried in her womb was, in fact, God incarnate. Wow. Now there's some doubt whether Nestorus actually believed what uh, we said that he believed, and we're, uh, the Assyrian church still believes, uh, Theodicus believes, the Nestorian view. No, the Christocatus. And they're actually talking about coming back together with the Catholic Church because they realize it was sort of a dumb argument anyway. But this is thousands of years later. All right. So, in this same place, are you getting the idea here? That this place, once a place that was told to love and to sift truth from falsity, has now just become the seat of true and false. Now we've got another one, monophysitism. Who comes up with these names? <laughs> but you could probably guess, monophysitism, monophysitism, one body. All right, Justinian I, Justinian the Great, was a Byzantine emperor, East Roman emperor, 527 to 565. Supposedly that's what he looked like, at least in a mosaic. Justinian sought to revive the empire's greatness and reconquer the lost western half of the historical Roman Empire. And whenever anybody comes up with this idea, you remember the last guy came up with this idea, <laughs> you know trouble ensues. Yes? Let's unite the empire. Are we hearing that theme, though? Unity in Christ. But at what cost? One of the main objects of Justin the Great's policy was the consolidation of Eastern Christianity as a bulwark against Zoroastrianism, power in Persia. If you know anything about Persian history, Zoroastrianism is the main religion before Islam. Per the persecution of all remaining pagans in the empire. Wow, things have reversed, haven't they? And unfortunately, things have reversed. What's that famous quote? We have seen the enemy and he is us. This is one of those moments. Justinian I and John of Ephesus were both monophysicists. Yes, that means the emperor himself is going to lose. Supposedly, the right view is the Chalcedonian view. Now, when I read Chalcedonian, I'm like, that couldn't be the right view. The humanity and divinity of Jesus and Nazareth are exemplified as two, because Chalcedonians are Babylonians. But it's the Council of Chalcedon that decides this, so that's why it's called the Chalcedonian view are exemplified as two natures that the one hypostasis of the Logos perfectly subsists in two natures. This was the winning team. Yes, this is officially what the church believes, that in Jesus, both natures, distinct, separate, unified. Yes, God and man. The monophysitic view one person of Jesus Christ, divinity and humanity are united in one nature, two being united without separation, without confusion, without alteration. John of Ephesus enjoyed, now another John, who's known as John, as Ephesus, John of Ephesus, which is confusing because if you go to look these people up, you've got the apostle John who lived in Ephesus and then John of Ephesus, and there's another John, but we don't want to get into that. He enjoyed the emperor's favor until his death in 565, and he was entrusted with the administration of the entire revenues of the Monophysite church. So this is not a small group of people. The Monophysites actually are 
representative of the, of the entire Eastern Byzantine church. Are you with me? So John of Ephesus is a non-Chalcedonian, <laughs> one of the earliest and most important historians. He wrote a history of the church, though. So this is actually, if you want to look at him up, it's he wrote one of the first histories of the church. He was sent by Justinian on a mission for the conversion of such pagans as remained in Asia Minor in 542 and informs us that a number of those whom he baptized amounted to 70,000. So it sounds like, and then he, so he was ordained the bishop of our, our town, Ephesus. Unfortunately, this happens. 546, the emperor entrusted him, and if you made a movie of this, this would be the, you know, kind of in the smoky room, the men, are, they, he, the Justinian calls him in. Um, here's the underground plan. In 546, the emperor entrusted him the task of rooting out the secret practice of idolatry in Constantinople and its neighborhood. He carried out this task faithfully, torturing, and I'm not saying this, he writes about it, torturing all suspected of the wicked heathenish error, as John himself calls it, finding much worship of the ancestral gods among the empire aristocracy. So, Ephesus, once the home of love, unity, and Sitting, sorting out truth has now become the head of just sorting out the wicked. Yes? We're saying it won. It it became the dominant view, yes, of the the Roman Catholic Church, but it did not become the dominant view of the Assyrian Church and some other different churches. And Eastern Orthodox decided at this point to agree with Rome on this one. But in many ways, they didn't agree. And the Protestant Reformation as well. Yes. They didn't bring that one up again. They do. Today. They do. Yeah. Okay, two ways to answer that. Simplest, yes. It's, as much as the Catholic Church is the same as the Catholic Church of that time. I mean, it changes. But yes, this would be the Eastern Orthodox Church. Before they called themselves Eastern Orthodox. But his fortunes changed. <laughs> Another John, the Scholasticus, 
uh, the Chalcedonian Patriarch began a rigorous persecution of the Monophysite church leaders. John was taken, tortured, and died in prison. Wow. Now, here are my conclusions. Because <laughs> that would be an odd place to end. John was taken and died in prison. Thank you. All right, so I want to make a few observations that I've kind of already made clear, I hope, along the way. <coughs> Ephesus was, as we know, the center of the worship of Artemis. The traditional association of Mary with Ephesus mirrors her historical association with sites sacred to the pagan goddess. Now, if you think about it, if it's true that Mary did die elsewhere, then you have to think, well, why did we even have this tradition? Why did we feel this need to move her there? Well, if you think, this of all cities of ancient Greece is known most for the goddess. And Christianity decided early on there is a male god and there is no goddess. There is no mate to the god. In fact, most people believe when God said, uh, I am God, there are no other gods, he meant I don't have a mate. I'm not like other gods. So this idea that God always had a mate or that uh, there were femi female gods is lost. But the need for a female god is very strong in people, this feeling that uh, it's the old mom and dad thing, right? That mom will give you the hug and dad will give you the slap. That's not always true, but a lot of times in my own family, I was much more comfortable talking to my mother about my problems and what was going on in my life than my father. And that's not true everybody, but I think there was this need. And the church reflected that need to the point that by the time we get to the Middle Ages, Mary... There are arguments as to whether Mary is the third person of the Trinity. But that's way down the road. All right, so we go back to the Ecumenical Council decision. In that location, that's what's important, is why did they pick Ephesus to make this council decision? To affirm the title Theodicus over Christocaticus. But as a theme that I've been talking about, over the times that I've been here, the veneration of Mary can at least partially be attributed to the ancient need for a goddess mother figure. This controversy also illustrates the recurring theme of Ephesus as a site of sifting truth from falsity. So Ephesus was a center of metropolitan culture in the time of the New Testament, known for its syncretism. Syncretism meaning a blending of different religious faith and tolerance. Paul's letter centers on themes related to that. He commends them on their sense of truth, their unity and diversity, and calls them to love. First Timothy reiterates the theme of love and ability to identify truth. So Paul is still preaching that same message through Timothy. Revelation commends their ability to assess truth, but notes what? Hey, I've forgotten the love. I'm going to put the verse back up there. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. He didn't know the half of it. Ignatius commends only the church's ability to sift truth from other truth. It's kind of like they got the one message, not the other. <laughs> that was a clever little trick. Let's watch that again. <laughs> it does. The Third Ecumenical Council again identifies Ephesus as a site of reasoning about truth and falsity. So it becomes known for a place to do that, not for its love, unfortunately. So 
in a way, I am going to say, well, John died in prison. <laughs> That's my ending. It's kind of a sad ending. The appointment of John of Ephesus as a remover of heresy in Constantinople confirms that over time Paul's message of love is overshadowed by a drive within the Ephesian church to confront and root out heresy. The need for unity becomes a weapon rather than a strength. Hmm. I'll leave you to figure out what lessons the modern church might take from that. But I do think, to reflect on the end, I just had a student write me, and he's dropping one of my courses because he can't get financial aid anymore. He's, he just can't seem to get his act together. And he's the younger brother of a student that I had a fairly good experience with, but I basically had to push through. He just had to really stay on him to get him graduated. Well, his younger brother's worse. And, you know, subplot, he's smoking a lot of pot. He's, you know, he's, he's making a lot of mistakes. And not like I didn't make any mistakes. But he said that he, he wrote me and he just said he wanted to talk. And what's interesting is he said, I would talk to my brother, but all he'll do is just give me scowls. And I'm like, here is the difference, isn't it? When someone is in error, it's easy to kick them out and say they're of the devil, they're of Satan, and whatever. It's very hard to love them and to keep on loving them. I will admit in my own personal history when I went through a divorce, a lot of people from the church turned their back on me, and it, that's very hard to forget. You know what I'm saying? It's very hard to forget. And I don't hold it against all people in any church, of course. But I remember it. They turned their back, and I remember who didn't. <laughs> More importantly, I remember who didn't. So I would like to look at this and think, they lost it. They lost what Paul was telling them to do. They looked at one little part of the picture and forgot the big picture, right? So I decided this morning, I'm going to have that student to my office. I've got to figure out how to love him <laughs> to staying in college <laughs> and not make him feel like an idiot. That just doesn't work, does it? You have to try. Sadly, the church, I think, missed opportunities to love people into the church and just push them out and worse. All right, thanks. Philadelphia. <laughs> 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 One would think. <laughs> you know, I'm not sure. I think it's going to be Philippi. We'll see. Still working on it. I'm trying to find my angle. I have one for Philippi. Still working on Galatians. Because it's four different churches and they're very different. So, come and see.
funny that we hear that.
that's good.